I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I create Goodwill Hunters, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm really excited to be sharing new episodes with you after a long break for Goodwill Hunters. After four years of podcasting and over 140 episodes, I thought it was time to take stock. When I started Goodwill Hunters, it was the first podcast airing weekly content dedicated to international development in Australia. Since then, many other incredible podcasts have come online, exploring all facets of the development sector. I've linked to some of my favourites in the show notes. When I considered what's missing, though, I think it's deep conversations on what leadership and governance means for international development right now. As I continue in my own executive journey, I'm increasingly asking myself, what does it mean for me to be a leader? In this series, I'll be asking a range of leaders the same question. What does their leadership mean? What formative experiences shaped their leadership style? And what advice do they have for you and I? Today's guest is the formidable Srilatha Batliwala. Srilatha is a feminist activist, researcher, and scholar. As a fun fact, we studied at the same college in India, the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. Srilatha has spent the past 45 years working on grassroots movement building in India. She has vast board and leadership experience, which you'll hear about during our conversation. Srilatha and I talk about how she became a vocal advocate for feminist leadership principles, and she shares her very special and personal leadership mantra. We discuss personal transformation and spiritual shifts and how by looking inward, we become better leaders. And we discuss decolonization and how international organizations can turn the mirror on themselves and view themselves as sites of change. Without further ado, here is Srilatha Batliwala. Srilatha, thank you so much for joining me on Goodwill Hunters. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be invited to be on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's really nice to hear. We've had a hiatus from podcasting. So this is the first episode back and I can't think of a better guest. But I understand you've just been doing a lot of podcasting yourself, right? Yes, I have. We've just recorded six podcasts uh, as part of a series uh, that we call Think Feminist. And it's about uh, helping young activists to understand concepts that are important in their activism. Well, it sounds fascinating. And I understand it will launch um, shortly after this episode launches. So keep an eye out um, if you're listening to this uh, on our social media, and we'll try and share that series in a couple of weeks. But Srilatha, I want to start this conversation on leadership by talking about your formative experiences. And I know that your aunt um, ran for parliament, which played a role in the development of your leadership style. So can you tell us about that phase of your life? Absolutely. But I do want to start by acknowledging the big role that others uh, played in my development as a, as a leader, or at least in inspiring my uh, approach to leadership. I really grew up with some very inspirational people in my family. I was very lucky. My paternal grandmother 
my father, and of course, my aunt, who was a leader throughout her life. Uh, my grandmother was actually what you might call an indigenous feminist and brought me up till the age of six and taught me to believe that I was incredibly smart, capable of doing anything I wanted to in the world, and above all, to be financially and psychologically independent. My father was a scientist turned green energy guru. And throughout his life, he actually modeled for me what it means to share power and hold oneself accountable in one's own behavior and practices to the ideals of equality and social justice that he believed in. But my aunt really was the ultimate inspiration. She stood for election and won a seat to the national parliament, to the Indian parliament, when I was just 16 years old. How many people really in the so-called developed world can say that? She took me on the campaign trail with her and I used to watch in awe as she addressed crowds of hundreds of people, mainly men, and spoke with such utter confidence and clarity of what she would do, what she would deliver if she was elected. The main thing that I think struck me so deeply and inspired me was how she held herself and how she never for a moment saw herself as less equal or less capable than anyone, much less any man. And I saw uh, what I think became an important insight for me, which is the role of inner power, of that belief in oneself, that that mattered as much as the power you gain from any position uh, of authority. And of course, I also learned from her how to use the power one has, this inner power, in ways that are very fair and just and inclusive towards other people. She sounds like an incredible influence and you talk about her with such love, which is, is really special to hear. She passed away very recently, uh, a few months ago, in fact, at the age of 95. Wow. Wow, what a life. We're blessed when we have people in our family as our role models from a young age, aren't we? And I know not everyone can say that really, but it's it's such a blessing and it shows how our leadership styles develop at such a young age. Childhood is so formative for leadership, isn't it? Absolutely. Especially because what you are within, that power within or sense of powerlessness within is really shaped at that very, very early stage of your life. It doesn't mean you can't change it. It doesn't mean you can't transform how you look at yourself or feel within yourself later, but it's, let's just say, it's a powerful start. Definitely. And that experience led you to work in grassroots activism in the earliest parts of your career. What was that like? I think it was a, a very sort of uh, natural transition for me uh, because 
I did, however, I think in my teen years and even through my uh, uh, formal education at university, have a dilemma because I also had a very strong academic inclination. You know, I loved reading, I loved theory, I loved research. And so the dilemma was really, uh, should I go into social research and, you know, studying social problems or should I do something about them? So I think my entry into direct grassroots work was very much the result of realizing that I don't want to be studying problems from a distance that I know nothing about at first hand. And my commitment to the concept even then that research needs to be in partnership with those whom we are studying and the, those with the problems that we are studying. So I felt that I needed to first work on the ground, work with the most marginalized and excluded people, especially women, because my aunt's entire career was really focused on women and marginalized women. So I was also clear in my mind that the grassroots work I wanted to do had to focus on uh, women who I felt and realized already in my 20s were the most silenced and the least heard. It's interesting that you talk about the proximity that some researchers and even some leaders have between the people that they're trying to help and their own lived experience. And we have that concept of sitting in an ivory tower and grassroots activism and any sort of grassroots work really is a counter to that, isn't it? It's being immersed amongst the the people and working in partnership with them, right? Absolutely. I think this ability to straddle the worlds of activism and, uh, you know, academic work, the worlds of practice and research uh, was a particular uh, skill that I gained uh, in this process because I remember uh, as a young activist, I would always be bugging my colleagues to think more analytically, to try and analyze the situations we were encountering. I would push women to ask, okay, but why? You know, why are there these rules for women? Why are there these norms? And so I think when I was an activist, I was always pushing people to think more analytically. And when I was in the world of research and scholarship and in the academy, I was pushing in the opposite direction. Subject your theories, put their feet to the fire of real lived experience and of the lives of people. Uh, so, you know, I think that was a, an interesting sort of dance that I have danced much of my life. Can you talk a little bit more about the Indian context specifically? I, I have a real interest in it, having had the privilege of studying at the Tata Institute in Mumbai and Bangalore in, in my undergraduate um, days. And at that time, we began to develop a very 
small level of awareness regarding the complexity of gender issues in India, particularly with aspects of the caste system, but also the fact that India has an incredibly vibrant civil society and is a passionate advocate for democratic norms in a lot of ways. Tell me if I'm correct, because you're the expert, obviously, but but what was that like and what is it like working on gender in India? It's a very complex question. Uh, I guess the shortest answer I could give is it's incredibly, incredibly exhilarating and exciting and incredibly hard. And yes, India had a vibrant civil society. I am sorry to say, I don't think that's the reality now because civil society is really being quite actively crushed. But I think what was unique about India is, and I think this is true across many, many uh, uh, different spheres of work, we have in some ways, the absolutely worst forms of social injustice that are imaginable in the world. Uh, you know, we have the incredible oppressions of the caste system. We have incredible levels of sanctioned violence against women. Uh, in, in many ways, I think the uh, the diabolical sort of partnership between patriarchy and caste has created forms of injustice and violence and oppression for women that are really quite unique. Uh, and I know how bad things were, for instance, in China, and I know uh, how bad things have been, for example, for indigenous women in different parts of the world and so on. So it's not that I'm unaware of the serious problems confronting women in Africa and Latin America and other parts of Asia, and for that matter, even in the North. Uh, but I think what is unique about India is that you see extreme expressions of patriarchy, uh, like, you know, child marriage, of course, female genital mutilation, and all these kinds of practices. Let me give you an example. In uh, one area where I worked for many years uh, in a grassroots women's empowerment program, uh, the custom was that Dalit girls, that is girls of the most oppressed castes uh, and a particular caste, uh, when they got married, they had to be sent on the wedding night to the house of the landlord, who was obviously an upper caste, uh, upper class landowning person, to be deflowered by him or one of his sons or any male of his choosing. That was a ritually accepted practice. It had to be accepted by her husband as well. You know, I mean, can you just imagine 
that kind of a nexus between caste and gender. And this was a symbolic act of asserting the upper caste's control over the bodies and the sexuality of Dalit women, quite apart from over their economic well-being and so on. So that's just an example I'm giving you of how acute these problems are in our context. And so, but at the same time, I think for a very, very long time, uh, the Indian state was very progressive in its policies. And at least in, uh, let's say, in, in, in public stances and in speech was very uh, pro the empowerment of women, the eradication of the, uh, these sort of gross expressions of the caste system and for women's upliftment, as it was once called, and then later women's empowerment. So I think there was always a relatively supportive uh, bureaucracy and, uh, you know, elected representatives, etc., which generally sort of more well disposed towards people working with particularly marginalized uh, women. So we had that going for us. But on the other hand, I mean, the backlash we faced in the field when women, when we did mobilize women, brought them together, they began to assert themselves, raise their voices, uh, you know, take actions. Uh, no, it was not always, uh, you know, about issues like violence. In fact, very often it was about basic development needs, access to drinking water, improving the quality of the local, you know, government schools. Uh, ensuring they get minimum wages for their labor, this sort of thing. But nevertheless, there was often very, very strong backlash. I mean, not often, always backlash, sometimes from their own menfolk and often, uh, much more often, of course, from uh, other classes and castes who were benefiting, obviously, from this uh, particular power structure. So it's this combination of exhilaration because the breakthroughs you make with women. And I think, you know, one of the very early myths that got busted for me, uh, Rachel, was this idea that, you know, empowerment is a very slow process. You know, it takes a long time to make change. I'm sorry. If you use the, you know, Paulo Freire conscientization approach and the consciousness raising approach. If you don't start with handing out welfare and handing out loans and handing out this and that, but you really trust that women have a capacity to examine their own situation with new eyes and they decide what are the issues they want to focus on and what are the changes they want to make. Empowerment is an incredibly rapid process because, hello, they know exactly how oppressed they are. All you're doing is creating the safe space for them to, as I always say, think dangerous thoughts and plan dangerous deeds. And then 
it's like a torrent. You know, it's like a dam bursts and they are charging forward. And even with backlash, I always found they were the best at planning how to deal with backlash, whether the resistance came from within their own communities and their own men, or it came from elsewhere. They were extremely clever in handling this. Oh, wow. Thank you for that description. It's it's really fascinating. And as you talk through it, it's really clear to see your path towards developing a feminist approach to leadership. It's not a surprise that in that context, your approach to leadership is deeply grounded in feminist principles. And that, as I understand, that's what you bring to boards. I hope so. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I, uh, you know, actually, there is a very interesting story or a parable uh, that demonstrates how that grassroots reality never leaves me. It, um, it's uh, there in every role I play, in every site I operate and in every location I or every you know position I occupy. And the story is this. Uh, when I was first leaving India to go and work abroad, and this was in uh, 1997, I was uh, joining the Ford Foundation in New York uh, to as a program officer, as a global civil society program officer, believe it or not. And um, the women from the uh, big movement of uh, slum dwellers and pavement dwellers in Bombay, they organized this farewell party for me in Bombay. And so I went to Bombay uh, for this gathering. And, you know, they did this lovely celebration and sang all these, you know, great songs and made up a hilarious song about me and things like that. And then there was the serious part of the function where uh, one of the leaders of the women's uh, collective uh, of the Women's Federation, she, her name was Madina, a very, very powerful, powerful grassroots woman. And Madina uh, made the speech, the formal speech. And what she said is, all right, look, dear sister, We've taught you everything you know, and we trained you well. And then you went down to Bangalore and to that other province, and you did very good work with rural women, and we are very proud of you for that. Now you're going off to America uh, to work in this big, powerful organization, and you're going to have lots and lots of money to give people to do good work. But just remember one thing, we will be sitting like a ghost on your shoulder and asking you every day, what have you done today for marginalized people? What have you done today for the women who are most silenced and least hurt and most in need of change? And you will have to answer to us every day before you close your eyes at night. This was 
the mantra that I think I've carried with me and certainly into my roles, uh, role on any board. And I've held it front and center throughout. It makes me very emotional hearing that. It's so beautiful. It's so simple, isn't it, in a way? Mm. And it's a reminder of why we become leaders. Exactly. And that very few leaders, I hope, became leaders for the sake of leading, but rather became leaders because they saw an injustice and they wanted to play a role in solving it. And I think it also speaks to the importance of knowing yourself and what you stand for before you become a leader in terms of title. Absolutely. I think there was this, uh, you know, important uh, sort of mantra or reminder that it's not about you. You're not in that seat because you're so great and, you know, and now you have all this power and that it's all about you, you know, but reminding you, you're there for the mission and you're accountable to the mission. And so this, you know, at at the Ford Foundation, for instance, I found many of my colleagues used to have these long debates about, oh, you know, who are we accountable to and what is our accountability? We have all this money and, but in the end, what's the system of accountability here? It's like you're accountable to your boss. It's you're accountable for how many grants you got out the door, that sort of thing. And I would just look at them, you know, very puzzled <laughs> because I never, ever felt my primary accountability to any of those things. Of course, they were there, but I always felt accountable for what am I doing to, you know, advance the mission that I committed myself to when I was, whatever, 19 years old, you know. So, yeah, it's a very powerful way. Another transition that I went through, though, that I should mention, because it has been a very important part of my internal transformation as well, is that about, you know, 25 years ago, I, uh, let's say, experienced a certain kind of enlightenment, uh, a spiritual enlightenment. And I have a guru who's very little known. She's a woman. Uh, But my spiritual practice has also been uh, a big influence in my leadership development and my style. Because in this particular sect, like in any great spiritual movement, uh, the big emphasis is on getting past your ego and holding your ego in check, you know, that true evolution as a human being and true enlightenment comes from uh, really transcending your ego. Now, of course, very few people achieve that. Only the greatest, greatest spiritual leaders have ever actually achieved that. But working on that side by side with this commitment to the mission, I think has helped me a great deal in, uh, you know, developing a form of leadership that I do feel is deeply feminist. Mm. 
I don't think we talk nearly enough about the need for internal transformation. As leaders, we talk so much about all of the external skills that we're developing, but very little about those spiritual shifts that you've talked about. In fact, when I taught the course on feminist leadership, uh, which I did for my organization for Kriya for many, many years, I used to, I had this little sort of pathway of moving towards, you know, real feminist leadership. And guess what step one in the pathway was? Work on yourself. So I always said that the thing about feminism, it's, it says it's the personal is political. In some ways, that is the most important feminist principle ever. That change begins with you. It's not about how everybody else has to change. It's not about how society has to change, how all these systems have to change and all these structures have to be dismantled. Yes, but then you're part of that too. So don't forget that as part of transforming society, you have to transform yourself. My second dictum was always, can you demonstrate these values in action in your day-to-day behavior? And if you start to do that very consciously, you know, what does it mean to say, I believe everyone has equal voice and a right to equal participation, you know, equal dignity. What does that mean in your day-to-day interactions uh, with people? So I've always believed that, and that's why I also believe that organizations, you know, coming to the role of boards, organizations can also look at themselves in the same way that if we are engaged in social transformation, if that's our mission, how are we demonstrating it inside our four walls? Are we mirroring the change that we want to create in the larger world inside our own environment? Mm, It's a powerful question. I wonder how many boards and leadership teams are contemplating that question. Exactly. <laughs> you, um, I, I follow you on Twitter and we've had a conversation, we've had a few conversations and I know that another issue that you've been talking about more recently is around decolonization, um, which for our listeners in the aid and development sector would be quite familiar. Why is that one of the biggest issues facing boards and leadership teams in the development sector at the moment? I think it's very much related uh, to what I've just uh, spoken about, which is I think that development organizations, aid organizations, never actually saw themselves as sites of change. Uh, They never saw themselves as uh, a space in which to demonstrate uh, the changes that they sought in the larger world. Yeah. So I think they were so overwhelmingly focused on their external mission, on, you know, uh, getting resources out there, 
on, you know, designing and supporting the best possible, you know, change interventions and development programs and what have you. So they were very externally focused. And I think they made a very uh, human error, let me call it that, because I don't think at least I would not, and certainly my spiritual practice would not allow me to be very judgmental about this. I think they made the very human error of uh, disconnecting themselves as organizations and as individuals and as sites of uh, power uh, from, you know, the larger world or the larger mission that they were working for, as though the two are not, you know, connected. That's a very human error. I mean, when we get into social activism, we don't say, I want to change me. We say, I want to change the world. Or, you know, I want to stop violence against women. Or I want to stop and put an end to, to racism and racist uh, violence by enforcement agents, whatever it is, you know, we don't start by saying, wait, I want to examine myself and what have I internalized? Because somehow we don't just see ourselves as sites of change. So if you expand that and look organizationally, so all these organizations, and I've worked with a fair number of very large international development organizations, uh, aid agencies. I mean, I worked in the Ford Foundation itself, for instance. They never saw themselves as sites of racism, as sites of neocolonialism, but they were. Uh, they were reproducing inside, for instance, all the politics based on money power, federations, so-called international development organizations that have the federation model. Well, I sat on a board of a very big uh, uh, child development, uh, international or child development organization. And the board had representatives, and this was the language that was used we are from the donor countries and they are from the program countries. Do you see? Do you see the colonial mindset being replayed there? You're the program country. So you're the doers and we bring the money. We are the donors. And there was this huge, you know, uh, disequilibrium there because I saw how. Uh, inevitably, when something was put to a vote, for instance, because there was quite a large vote, you know, several dozens big. And I could see how when certain things were put to the vote, a lot of the representatives of the so-called program countries would just fall in line with what the donor, or I would watch the lobbying happening during coffee break where some of these so-called donor country guys would be talking to the program country guys and clearly kind of buying their support for that particular resolution. So, you know, I just, I mean, this is just a small example, but one which I found really obnoxious 
and I raised it. We were three people from the Global South who were brought on the board as independent directors. And one fine day, and I think in my third board meeting, I said, you know what? I think I have to resign from this board. And they were like, what? Why? What's happened? And I said, I, you know, and then I gave this whole explanation about how objectionable I found this language and this form of naming, how colonial it was. And I said, you know, either I'm a director or I'm not a director. What is this category called independent director? See, it was their way of minimizing the power of our voice, of kind of putting us in our place and saying, hello, you're there because we decided to bring you on. And why were we brought on? Why was that decision made? To make the board look a bit better in terms of its diversity. So organizations have been sites of all these kinds of power dynamics. But, but, and here's the key. These dynamics are hidden, they are insidious, and very often they're just plain invisible. A lot of men, for instance, in organizations would be shocked to be thought of as chauvinistic or, you know, uh, patriarchal in mindset and behavior or whatever, because they just don't see themselves that way. They don't see their behavior that way. So this is what organization, feminist organizational development experts uh, and my colleagues at Gender at Work particularly call the deep structure of organizations. So these power dynamics get reproduced Maybe 10% in very obvious ways, like this donor country director and program country director, obvious, visible. 90% of it is reproduced in these hidden ways and hidden sites in subtle forms that are difficult often to name and shame and call out and dismantle. And that's why I actually believe and have always tried in my capacity as a board chair or as a board member to make boards responsible, not just for the fiscal and statutory uh, compliance and health of the organization, and of course, in its larger external mission, but to make boards feel that we should also take responsibility for lead and initiate processes of internal transformation. Because you can't call an organization healthy and you can't as a board say that you're responsible for the health of a, an organization if you are not looking at where the deep, illness really lies, where the pathology or the dysfunction really lies. I'm sorry, Rachel, I've spoken a great deal. Please don't apologize. That was a fascinating answer. And I'm sitting here thinking about how 
important it is for leaders to have the courage to bring about deep structural change in an organization, but also how frightening that can be when, as you say, the organization may not see itself as a site of change and may not have ever turned the mirror back on itself. And as a leader, as a board director, that takes a lot of courage to step up and do that and can, as as you say, when you said, I think I need to resign, it can threaten your position and role in the organization too. Absolutely. Um, so maybe, you know, this is a good note to end on. Uh, there are several important, uh, let's say, adjuncts to this process of deep transformation. That's what I call it, deep transformation. I don't think boards obviously can do this on their own. And obviously, organizational leaders can't do it on their own either. Sometimes they are part of the problem, sometimes they're not, but whatever it is, they can't undertake this on their own. So I think the first step is for boards to really commit to this. And then, as you have very, very importantly pointed out, recognize that this is going to be a deeply disturbing and disruptive process, and that it is going to take a lot of courage to work through it, to patiently walk through this turbulence, but to believe that you must do it. You can't run away from it to the default mode which is because the default mode is the problem, but that if you walk through this journey, through that turbulence, it will lead you towards a much more authentic and healthy and genuine organization that really mirrors in its own space the transformation, the justice, the equality, the inclusion, blah, 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 that you claim are your values and that you claim you want to create in the world outside. But you have to recognize from the get-go that you can't do this alone. You need, I call it feminist mentoring, but you need mentoring and you need the mentoring support of people who have really committed to support development organizations to make this transition. And believe me, they're out there. For example, Gender at Work, which I work with and I'm an associate with, does this work and has been doing this work. They've done it with UN agencies. They've done it with international NGOs. They've done it with small grassroots organizations. They've done it with unions. For instance, in South Africa, there was huge amounts of violence against women members of the units completely been radically transformed. They do this with love, with support, but also with strength and critical facilitation. Because they believe that there is a humanity in each of us and they try to activate that and they try to make, this is what they do, which is so powerful. It's a nonviolent change process because they believe in nonviolent uh, change. So organizational mentoring, I don't want to call this change facilitation and all those kind of horrible management words, because this is not 
a management process, okay? This is not something where I bring in my KPMG or some management experts. No, this is a very different kind of transformation. So if we have organizational mentorship and mentorship available for those leading the organizational transformation process from in, within the uh, organization, then you really get somewhere. And I've seen it happen. I've seen the transformation happen. Because ultimately, I think you have to recognize what I said earlier, that if you can't create the change you believe in within the small space of your organization, I don't care how big it is in terms of funding and number of country offices and sites of operation and all that. Basically, it's a contained space. It's within your control. So if you can't create that change and mirror those values within the space, what makes you think you can do it in the bigger world? Mm -hmm. You've shared some really powerful advice today. Thank you so much for being on Goodwill Hunters. I would like to talk to you for hours, but that's not possible. Um, but thank you so much for your time. I know this will be of really great value to our listeners and, and it'll help them on their way in their journeys of leadership, wherever, wherever that journey is up to. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rachel. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed thinking about these questions and, you know, sharing my experience and my insights here. So thank you for giving me this space. I hope you enjoyed the episode. After we finished recording, Srilatha spoke about the importance of taking your donors along for the journey when you're going through a massive organizational shift. It's an important reminder that I wanted to leave you with. There are some resources in the show notes that might help you as you delve into some of these topics further. I hope this episode supports your development as a leader. I look forward to sharing another conversation with you next week.